Thank you, Don and Elise. Good to be sharing God's word with you again this morning. It's been a bit of a break. Break's okay, though, every now and then. Turn your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. from verse 17 to 20 this morning as we continue our look at the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 verse 17. Jesus says here, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for its effect on our lives. We just pray now that your spirit would, uh, would wield that sword in our hearts, that it would uh, divide asunder, Father, our intentions, our thoughts, our motives. Father, that you would lay bare our hearts, even to ourselves, that we may see ourselves as you see us. And I pray that you would indeed bless your word, that it, that it would bring back fruit for you through us. We thank you once again for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the freedom that we have to be able to meet in this way. And I pray that we would never take it for granted. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I like election time in Australia. I enjoy it. I watch, how many of you were sitting in front of a TV last night watching as the seats were going up and down? Go on. You were. Was it generally... If you watch the different, because we, we, we'd switch from Channel 2 to Channel 7 to Channel 9, and you'd, you'd, you'd probably, some people like certain commentators and things. And, but during election time, I find that actually people are having fun. It's not necessarily a sombre. I mean, obviously, at the end of, at the, end of the night, there's roughly 50% of the population that aren't gonna, that's not going to be happy with the result, and that's the, regardless of which way it goes. But there's a lot of, uh, if you notice the commentators that were sitting at, you know, you had, you generally had people from Labor, people from Liberal, and they're sitting on the same, same sort of, you know, desk. And they're having a joke with each other about, you know, how, you know, how you went here and how you went there, and they're having a bit of a, a banter as well. And that's good. That's not bad. In fact, like the fact that they actually emphasised that, I'm not sure if you saw it, that uh, it's a great Australian sausage sizzle day when we have an election. But they, they, they focus more on the sausage sizzles than they did on the actual election at some, at some points. Which is good. Because you know in some countries you can't get that. In some countries there is no sausage sizzle. There's a lot of fighting and killing that goes along with, uh, with election time or anything to do with that sort of stuff. So we are uh, blessed that we can actually have a, a bit of a joke about it even. And that we have political parties that don't kill each other. 
And we, and we can, you can have, for example, the Prime Minister of the country walking down the street without fear of getting killed. We live, we are blessed to live in this country. <clears throat> now, I liked one particular, um, there was a Labor candidate who I think, I'm not sure what his name was, but he was an ex-soldier and they were, they were interviewing him or the panel was interviewing him and, um, and he wasn't going too well on the polls. And uh, they said, oh, you know, how are you, how you going with it? He goes, oh, he goes, it's like I said all the time. He goes, because he was an ex-soldier, he goes, at least I'm not, I'm, no one's trying to kill me. Because being overseas, he said there was a bounty on his head at one particular time and they would, they would be calling him up on the phone saying, this is what we're going to do to you when we catch you, which wouldn't have been a very pleasant thing. But his he's take on the whole thing was, OK, that's part of the political process. It's all good. But at least no one's trying to kill me, literally. Um, but in some countries, the killing actually takes place. In some countries, um, you don't get much of a say if you're on the other side of the, uh, of the uh, divide. <clears throat> and that's what it was a bit like in Jesus' day. You know, as we read this passage in Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 5, 17 to 20, I want you to imagine it as being a bit of an election. Jesus is presenting himself as the Messiah to the people. He's presenting himself and he's saying... This I am who you've been waiting for all this time. I am the one who the prophecies spoke about. I am the one who is bringing you the kingdom of God to this earth. And you see something taking place in the whole discussion. You see opposition taking place. Now Jesus had already had confrontations with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes and the lawyers... And John the Baptist also discovered that the spiritual rulers of their day, which weren't just spiritual rulers, they were political rulers. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees had a political interest. They were the political rulers of their day. The Pharisees were like the, more like the right-leaning conservatives. The Sadducees were the left. But when Jesus came on the scene, they got together because they had a common foe in him. And John the Baptist discovered the same thing, that the spiritual rulers of their day, the religious leaders, were not really as spiritual as they should have been. In fact, these spiritual rulers or leaders, when they saw John the Baptist and they saw Jesus coming along, they only saw them as a threat to their own power. They saw them as a threat to their rule. But it was these spiritual leaders the people had to rely on for their spiritual guidance. These, the people of Jesus' day were simple people. Many of them were uneducated. They relied on the education of their spiritual leaders to tell them what God wanted of them and required of them. They looked at these spiritual leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, as examples of how they were to live their lives. That's all they knew. They knew nothing else. This, these were their, their, their examples. These were their leaders. 
and they depended on their leaders to tell them the truth. Unfortunately, leaders didn't tell them the truth. The leaders were more concerned about their own power, their own selves, their own pockets, in a sense, and they didn't do what they were meant to do. Like very good politicians, when Jesus came on the scene, these spiritual rulers ran what, was, what would be called in today's election campaigns as a scare campaign. They ran a fantastically good scare campaign, and we've seen plenty of those in our times. But this was more nasty, this scare campaign. You see, unlike the, the banter and the, and, the, and the general goodwill that goes on in our, in our, um, our leadership, even though it tends to get nasty at times, this was life and death stuff for them. They looked for every opportunity to try to accuse Jesus of breaking the law. If you read through your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you will find a number of examples where they looked for ways to accuse Jesus of being a false teacher, of being a false prophet. They accused him of being the devil himself at stages. Do you remember when Jesus healed on the Sabbath? The first, rather than looking at the actual results of the healing, the first thing they did was do what? Saying he broke the law. He has no regard for God's law because he healed on the Sabbath. In other words, you weren't meant to work on the Sabbath. And they, and they accused him of actually working on the Sabbath, thus breaking the law. When Jesus' disciples ate, ate corn, without washing their hands with all the ceremonial stuff that the Pharisees used to do. They accused him of breaking the law and him and his disciples. Jesus says when, when John the Baptist came neither eating or drinking, they said that he had a demon. So John the Baptist was eating locusts and honey and, and that sort of stuff over there and they said that guy was possessed. When Jesus came along and he, and he would go to people's weddings and things of that nature, they said, look, a drunk. They looked for every opportunity to try to destroy his reputation in front of the people. That's a great campaign. And they did it for a very specific reason. They wanted to protect themselves and their power base. They looked at every point to trap him, to trick him, to corner him into making mistakes that would make him look foolish in front of the people. That's what politicians do today. They look at every phrase and every sentence that the opposition does and they say, look what he said there. And they'll try to blow it out of proportion to make the opposition look silly, foolish or having an agenda. They did exactly the same thing with Jesus. But these men were morally bankrupt. Instead of being the spiritual leaders of their day, instead of actually being examples of what God's word was like, they were bankrupt. And Jesus repudiated these religious leaders of his day as whitewashed tombs. Men who were not concerned about the spiritual well-being of their people, but only of their own personal standing and to line their own pockets. They, in every sense, were what Jesus called hypocrites. On the face, they presented one way, but inside they were something totally different.
In Matthew 23, 13, Jesus says, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering in. So, in other words, Jesus accused them not only of being morally and spiritually bankrupt, but what they did was actually stopped other people from entering into the kingdom of heaven because they corrupted them as well. When you read a lot of the New Testament, a lot of the narrative in the actual in Matthew and Luke especially, this is what's going on in the background. What's going on in the background is that you've got the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and, and all, those, all these guys in the background cavorting with one another, trying to undermine what Jesus is saying. They did it to John the Baptist, and they did it to Jesus. And so while Jesus is presenting himself as the long-awaited Messiah that the scriptures had foretold, the religious leaders were busy trying to undermine him and, and throw as much mud and dirt on him as they possibly could. And part of that campaign was to undermine Jesus as a teacher of God's law. If they could dissuade the people or prove to the people that Jesus didn't know what he was talking about when it came to the law, the people would have to turn away from him because the Messiah was the personification of God's word. He was the one who was meant to be the fulfilment of all those prophecies and laws. And if he didn't teach something consistent with that, then the people would have to reject him. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. I'll explain a verse to you. It says in verse 12, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Ever wonder what that means? I remember speaking to a couple of Pentecostals once, and their idea of this particular verse was that it was the Christians who were the violent ones who were kicking in the gates of hell and we were taking the kingdom of heaven by force. Later on I discovered this verse has nothing to do with Christians taking the kingdom of heaven by, by violent means. What this means is, is that the kingdom of heaven was being taken by violence by the religious leaders of the day. It was the Sadducees, the Pharisees, who looked to do what to Jesus? They wanted to kill him. They looked for ways to murder him, to undermine him. And it was the religious leaders of the day who were violently taking the kingdom of heaven. They were taking it in ways they shouldn't have taken it. And the people were suffering as a result. This is what Jesus experienced. The violence that comes from people who feel threatened. That's why Jesus says in verse 17 and 18 of Matthew chapter 5, Think not that I am come to destroy the law. Now where would they get in their heads that he'd come to destroy the law? Did he tell them he was going to destroy the law? No. It came from them. 
Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall not in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. What was Jesus trying to counteract here? He was trying to counteract the campaign that was against him at that stage. When they were saying that Jesus is here to destroy everything you got, that everything the Bible teaches. He's trying to undermine everything that we believe. And Jesus says, no, I didn't come to destroy. I didn't come to get rid of. In fact, I came to fulfill it. Now, how did he fulfill? Well, he fulfilled it by fulfilling some 300 prophecies that were found in the prophets. At least 300 times in the Old Testament that foretold how Jesus would be, where he would be born, how he would be betrayed, what he would do for his people. He fulfilled all of those prophecies. No one else could. And no one else, if they're still waiting for him now, there is no one else who could ever qualify for those to fulfill those prophecies today. They foretold the coming of the kingdom of God. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. Daniel prophesied and it says... And in the days of these kings, now that's at the end. This is in the end, during the tribulation period. Shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. That kingdom is the kingdom of Christ. And in other places in Daniel, it speaks about the stone that would strike the base of that of a mountain and it would totally destroy it and that and he would grow up to cover the whole earth. Jesus fulfilled and he's still fulfilling prophecies. In Mark chapter 1 verse 14, Jesus says, Now after that, sorry, now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Jesus fulfilled the prophecies. So when he says that I am not come to destroy the law or the prophets, he fulfilled all the prophets. And he fulfilled the law. Because he ushered in the new covenant, which was also a prophecy that would come to pass. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. 
Jeremiah says here in verse 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, God said that he would bring in a new covenant, a new agreement. We spoke about this morning during, uh, during our um, communion time. God says that there's going to be a new agreement that takes place. Not like the old agreement that was given on Mount Sinai, where God wrote down a list of rules and they were to follow those rules. And if they follow those rules, they'd receive a blessing. And if they didn't follow those rules, they'd receive curses and they'd be cut off. God says, God said they've broken that and they broke it throughout hundreds of years. They tried for certain times, they'd fall. They tried for certain times, they'd fall. They tried for certain times, they'd fall again. And if you looked at the history of, of, of Israel, you'll find that most of their kings weren't very good. They didn't lead the people into the truth. In fact, they turned most of the people away. Israel continually disregarded God's law. And the funny thing is, is that when their prosperity, when God ble- after they, they went through a time of repentance and then God blessed them, because of their repentance and they, and they began to, to prosper, as soon as they began to prosper, what did they do? What, what do you think they did? They fell away again. We don't need God anymore now. We've got everything we need over here. And then they'd fall flat on their face again. They'd be conquered by other people. And then they'd go running back to God and they'd say, God, please help us. And God would say, okay, I'll help you. So they, they'd repent. God would lift them back out of that place again. And they begin to prosper again. And then they go straight back to where they were before. Wonderful example of how people are. Wonderful example. You look at Israel, think of Israel as a person. Think of Israel, when you look at Israel, just think of them as a, as a normal person. And how a person normally behaves with God. Because everyone does the same thing. People go to God when they need him. They cry to him when, when they're in trouble, or when things are going well. Generally, they find they don't need God. Now, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 8 with me. So Jeremiah prophesied that there'd be a new covenant that would take place, one that didn't require the law, but one where God would put the law in the inward parts, inside the heart. So rather than it being a written law, God said he's going to put something in people's hearts. And Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6 says this, But now, but now hath he obtained... This is speaking about Jesus, okay? Hebrews 8 6 is, says, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also... He is the mediator of a better covenant. That's the new covenant, the New Testament, which was established upon better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. Now, if you read on, 
verse 8, 9 and 10, you'll find he repeats the prophecy from Jeremiah. Jesus ushered in the new covenant that was prophesied before. How did it affect the law? This is the, when, when Christians read this passage in Matthew, sometimes they get a little bit concerned. Because it would seem that Jesus is teaching here that you need to obey the law to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that by your own righteousness you'll get into it. And if you don't obey the law in every jot and every tittle, that you won't stay in it. And it looks as if Jesus is teaching a works-based salvation, contrary to what the Apostle Paul and the New Testament writers wrote. But look at it in terms of what he's actually doing, what he's actually doing and, and where he's actually saying it. Look at, look at Matthew 5.18. It says, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, Till all be fulfilled. Has it been fulfilled? Has, has, has it all been fulfilled? Has, has, you know, Jesus has fulfilled it. When it comes to the law, Jesus has fulfilled every righteousness. And he's the only person in history who ever did it. And he did it all. In John chapter 17, verse 4, he says, I have glorified thee on earth. So Jesus praying to the Father and he's saying, I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. He fulfilled the law perfectly. Jesus fulfilled the law. And not just that. He became the, the new priesthood of, of the new covenant. It says in Hebrews 7.12, For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom the, these things are spoken pertain to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. The Bible says now that the old Levitical priesthood is no longer acquired. There's a new priesthood. And that priesthood is Christ. That's why you and I can actually approach the throne of God directly. You see... In the old Levitical system, the priest, was, the priest stood between the average person and God. The, an average person would have to take their sacrifice to the priest and require the priest to come before God to pray for them. In addition, once a year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies to pay or, to, or to, to, to pay for the sins of the people in general. The people had no opportunity to enter into that, that place and come before God's throne themselves. But now Jesus, the Bible says, when that, when that veil was rent or torn from top to bottom in the temple, it opened the, the doorway for a person, once they've accepted Christ as their saviour, to be able to come before God's throne themselves and to make petitions straight to God. Why? Because Jesus himself is not just the sacrifice that was accepted by God, but Jesus is the priest before God. And the Bible says that he is the mediator between God and man, which is why, because of him, we can come directly to God. Because all of our prayers are accepted by God because they go through him. 
That's an exciting thing. I don't know if you've... I don't know, do you get excited about that? Because that's an, it's an amazing thing to think about. God cleansed us. God turned us or changed us from being enemies of God, rebels, sinners, corrupt in every possible way. And what he then did, he actually opened the door, made us clean, brought us into Christ so that we're accepted by God and we can now come before God, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything he's done, because of everything he is and continues to be, not because of who we are in any sense, by any stretch of the imagination. We don't, we don't deserve to be able to come before the throne of God, but God says, I want you to come before my throne because I've now called you my children. And a child has the right to come before their father. Jesus finished the work that God the Father gave him to do. He fulfilled every, every law. Jesus fulfilled the law, both ceremonial and moral. Now, there's a difference between those two as well. There was a ceremonial law in the Old Testament that required all the different things they had to do. I mean, there was, there was things about what foods they could eat and what they couldn't. There was uh, circumcision that had to take place. There was, um, there was a whole list of other laws and regulations that the Jewish people had to keep because of the Old Testament law. But there was a moral law as well, which is what we commonly refer to as the Ten Commandments. And it's not just the Ten Commandments, as if there's a number of other ones over there that refer to a moral law. But Jesus fulfilled both of those. Jesus fulfilled the law. But at the time that Jesus was declaring himself as the Messiah, had he fulfilled all the law? He hadn't. He was still fulfilling it, but he hadn't fulfilled all the law yet. He hadn't gone and, and, and brought in the new covenant. He hadn't fulfilled the promises that were meant to have taken place. He, he couldn't say at that stage until John chapter 17, I have finished the work that thou gavest me to do. Because only at that stage. So he came before the people and said, look, I'm the Messiah. And he rightly told them they were to obey the law in every sense, in every possible way. It wasn't until the new covenant was initiated that Jesus, that, that, that was actually done away with. Do you understand the difference? Until the new covenant was initiated by his blood, Jesus taught they had to follow all the law, every bit of it, ceremonial and moral. The difference today is that we, Jesus doesn't teach us to keep the ceremonial law and the moral law, the Bible says, is in, written in our hearts. And I'll talk to you a bit more about that in a second. Jesus instructed his followers at that stage in the Sermon on the Mount that they were to follow the law as best they could. Every law handed down from Mount Sinai. But keep it in mind, when Jesus was presenting this message on the Sermon on the Mount... There is no gospel message here, is there? There is no cross. There is no blood. There is no propitiation. There is no atonement. There is no indwelling of the Spirit of God. There is no adoption of sons. There is no new nature that they were to be given. There is no discussion of redemption here. That happened only because he gave his life as a ransom for us. 
That only came because they rejected him as their Messiah. They rejected him. Because they rejected him and they crucified him, it then opened the door for all those other things to take place. Jesus was offering the people the kingdom as it stood, incorporating all the laws. Remember who he was offering this kingdom to. It wasn't the Gentiles. It was the Jews. And if the Jews had accepted him as their Messiah, they, they were supposed to have kept the law. The only way the new covenant could be, could be introduced, though, was if he shed his blood. Now, that's a bit of a paradox, isn't it? Because Jesus is presenting them as the, that he is the Messiah and, and they were to follow the law, but he knew they weren't going to accept him. And he knew that in order for the new covenant to be initiated, he'd have to die. He knew it. And in this context, we can understand Jesus' command that they were to keep every law that was written and taught. Look at verse 19, Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But what does this mean for us today? What does it mean for us to be teaching the least of these commandments? Because the least of these commandments included all these ceremonial laws and all these, all these smaller laws. He says even the least of them. I haven't been teaching... A number of those laws, to be honest with you. What does it mean for us today? Well, we're not Jews. We don't teach circumcision from the pulpit over here. I haven't mentioned that as far as I know. That you have to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. I haven't, last time, I, I don't think I've spoken about celebrating all the feasts in the Old Testament. The Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of, uh, of Purim and all the different feasts that come. No, I don't. Sorry. I haven't uh, kept that part of it either. I haven't talked talk to you about the sacrifices that need to be take place and all the traditions and all the 600 laws that the Old Testament actually includes. I haven't done that for you. But then again, the Bible doesn't teach that we as Gentiles need to follow those rules. And it's interesting if you think about it. In fact, when it came time in the New Testament when, when Paul and Barnabas came back to the apostles in Jerusalem and said, guys, you just see what's happening out there. We've been out to those Gentiles, the Greeks and, and, and the Scythians, the Scythians and all these different, the, the Italians and all that, and they, they're accepting the gospel. They're becoming Christians. What do we do with them? So they had a big meeting about it. What do we do with these guys? What do we do with all these Gentiles? Do we ask them to become you know, uh, uh, circumcised? Do they follow? Which feasts do they have to follow? Which laws do they have to keep? You know, we, we want to make sure that we're doing the right thing. Well, after they had this huge meeting, they, they sent a letter off to these, uh, off to these uh, Gentile converts. And it's, the letter is actually found in Roman, in, sorry, Acts chapter 15, verse 28 and 29. And it says, this was their letter. All right, if, you want to, if you want to turn there, you can. Acts chapter 15, verse 28 and 29. 
Now think about all the rules and regulations and laws and things that the Old, that the Old Testament brought in. Now out of all those rules and regulations, the apostles managed to fit everything they wanted the, the Gentiles to do in two verses. Actually only one verse. It says in verse chapter 15, 28, it says, For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. All right, apostles, what are these necessary things? That you abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication, from which if you keep yourselves, you shall do well. Fare you well. You mean all those laws in the Old Testament? Where did they go? I mean, that's all you want to tell us? Abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled. I mean, those, those three things are actually related, if you, haven't, if you haven't noticed. Meats offered to idols, blood and things strangled have to do with dietary things, right? And why would they say those things from blood, from things strangled? Because the Jews are very particular about those things. The life is in the blood, is it not? Life, uh, blood is very symbolic. And it was, it's the blood that's, that symbolises the, 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 the sin. The blood that symbolise, sorry, the blood symbolised the cleansing of sin and the blood was required to cleanse sin. And from the very beginning, God said that blood, the shedding of blood is required for sin to be covered. So they said to them, listen, let, that's symbolic. And in order for you to, to actually not even, um, uh, what's the word, offend your Jewish brothers and sisters... Keep away from all that stuff. Just do that. And keep away from fornication. There's not many rules and regulations there. So how does it fit with what Jesus is saying over here? How does it fit where Jesus says, if you, know, if you teach um, anything less, who shall ever break one of these least commandments... And shall teach men so he shall be called the least in the kingdom. How do those two things fit? When the disciples are telling the Gentiles, just worry about these things over here. These four or five things. And Jesus is saying, hang on a sec. You ought to teach every last one of them. It's because we're in two different dispensations. That's why. Turn with me to Romans chapter 13. What does this mean for us? Romans chapter 13 verse 8 says this. Owe no man anything. Okay? What obligation do we have? It says, but to love one another, for he, hath loved, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Verse 9. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, 
thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. Verse 10, love worketh no ill to his neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. That's why he didn't have to tell us every last law in the Old Testament. Because love fulfills all those laws anyway. Love is a personification of, of that law. And though that law told us, thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not do that, thou shalt not do something else, love tells us to do. Which fulfills the don't do. Galatians also says it. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. That's the thing that God has planted within our hearts, you see. When God says he's planted the law within our hearts, you know what he's done? Because of the love, the love that Christ showed for us at Calvary, that love has overflown into our hearts. And love fulfills all the law, regardless of what it is. Love fulfills it. Because if I, look at, if I look at the thing where it says, thou shalt not commit adultery, think of this for a moment. If I'm committing adultery, am I showing love? No. I'm either showing love to my wife, and I'm not showing love to the person I'm committing adultery with. I'm treating that person as an object. But true love is faithful, is kind, is gentle, is peaceable. Is long-suffering. True love, if, if, if it's expressed, does not commit adultery. In fact, it loves the other person so much that it doesn't think about doing that. It doesn't. A, a man who truly loves because of the love of Christ is in him doesn't see a woman as an object. He sees a person there who's in need of Christ and doesn't take advantage of her. The Bible says, I shall not kill. Tell me, Jesus even brought, and I'll be looking at this in the coming weeks, where Jesus says, you know, if you, you're angry with your brother or you hate your brother, you've committed, you've committed murder, you've, you've killed. Why? Because true love doesn't hate. Hate produces murder. But when you love someone, it's the exact opposite of that. When you love your brother, you're not thinking about killing him. What are you thinking of doing? Good for them. So if you're thinking only of doing good to your brother, or to anyone in, in, in fact, you're not thinking of killing him. You're only thinking of their good. That's why love fulfills it all. It doesn't matter which law you want to put there. Thou shalt not steal. Why would I want to steal from someone who I love? It fulfills everything. This is, this is where people get a little bit caught sometime in the law. The law is a list of things that we are called to keep. It's not. The Bible, in fact, says that we are no longer under the law. No longer judged by the law. Do you understand what that says? We are no longer, the Bible says, under the law. In other words, the law does not judge us anymore. We can't be judged by the law. But the Bible says that the love of God has been planted in our hearts in a way that we fulfill every law 
We fulfill it. Paul says, do we then make void the law through faith? So by faith in Christ, there were some who were going to Paul and saying, how dare you teach that without teaching them the law? How dare you say by faith in Christ a person is found acceptable before God and they can't be condemned by, by sin? What are you doing, Paul? Aren't you running a risk there? Aren't you saying that a person can live whatever way they like and they're always going to be accepted by God? That means you're going to make them go out and sin and do everything. And Paul's saying, hey, God forbid. I'm not teaching that. What I'm teaching is that in verse 31 it says, God forbid, yea, we establish the law. In other words, our lives are the epitome of the law. Not from the negative point of view, but from the positive point of view. In other words, true love fulfills all the law and more. The Christian deep down loves the law of God. Because you read the law of God and you say, thou shalt not kill, you agree with it immediately, instinctively. Because in your heart you say, how can I kill someone I love? It's impossible. How can I steal from them? How can I take advantage of them? How can I hate them? How can I covet what they want, what they have? When I'm loving them. I'm spending too much time loving someone to take advantage of them. The Christian deep down loves the law of God. Because you know something? What the law does, the written law in the Old Testament, you know what it does, its purpose is? Not to tell someone this is how you, you are to live your life. The written law of God was given to drive a person to Christ. That's the purpose of God's law in the Old Testament. That's the purpose. Pure and simple. That's all it was meant to do. It was meant to show us how sinful we were. And when you find out how sinful you actually are, you say, where do I go? What do I do now, God? And as the Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? And there's your answer. Hung on a cross. The man who loved you so much that he gave his life for you and shed his blood to cover all those sins of yours. There's your answer. Run to him and cling to him. He's your solution forever. That's what the law does. The law only reveals how sinful we actually are. The law leads a person to Christ. But beyond this, the Bible teaches that the true essence of the law is written now in our hearts. And we as the people of God's kingdom fulfill the true purpose of the law because the love of God is the motivator of the children of God. And it reveals the true beauty of God's law. So when Jesus mentions adultery, he says that it begins with the condition of the heart and not just the physical manifestation on the outside. When Jesus speaks about that shall not kill, it involves always the heart. Everything starts from in here. That's why Jesus said, it's not what you put in your mouth that corrupts the person, it's what comes out. Because out of the heart proceed fornications and sins and every evil thing that, that men do come from inside. So God has to change us from the inside out, not from the outside in. That's why the law couldn't do that. All the law could do was condemn us. It couldn't change us from the inside. But when Jesus came along, that amazing love that he showed us changed us from the inside out. And when God planted his Holy Spirit in us, there was no going back. 
And we'll look at the specific commands in the coming weeks. That's why Jesus in verse 20, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. You know something? The bar wasn't that high. The bar wasn't that high with these scribes and Pharisees, to be honest with you. Jesus says, I'll read you some of the things that Jesus said about these scribes and Pharisees. Matthew 23, 1 says, Then Jesus spake to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore, what, all therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. Number one, they taught but didn't do what they, what they were actually teaching. What does that make a person? Hypocrite. Matthew 23, 4 says, For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move one finger to help them. So what did they do? They made it harder for people to enter into the kingdom of God and they were happy about it. And they didn't help anyone to try to get them moving to spiritually grow. Did they love their fellow man? No, they only only concerned about themselves. Matthew 23, 5 says, But all their works they do to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the uppermost rooms of the feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called Rabbi, Rabbi. What did they love? The praises of men rather than the praises of God. In verse 23, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to have left the other undone. They were so fussy about the little things in front of them that they missed the really big ones. Mercy, faith. They were so worried about the little tiny things to make life harder for the average person so they couldn't fulfil those things but they missed out on all the important things they missed out on the big ticket items they worried about the little ones so was the bar high? not very much, not very high these guys were pure and simply hypocrites not all of them were hypocrites I'm sure there were some that were okay I mean Nicodemus came to Jesus at night but generally These guys were bad news. And Jesus was continually confronting them about their hypocrisy. They majored on the minors and they minored on the majors. They neglected God's law and they didn't do with God's law what they were supposed to do. Luke 11.52 says, Woe unto you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in, you hindered. The key of knowledge is the proper use of God's law. The proper use of God's law is to drive a person to Christ. Let's close up with, a, with just a passage in Romans and Galatians. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3, verse 19, just to round off this point. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know 
that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Okay? Is that, a, is that simple enough? By the law is a knowledge of sin. And it is, is for, it's for everyone on this planet who is under the law, the law condemns them to hell. It condemns them as sinners and guilty. And then it drives a person to find a solution. Okay? Turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 22. Galatians 3.22. This repeats the same thing here again. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin. In other words, every person is guilty before God because the law stands with the big accusing finger and says, you're guilty. That the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. That's what the purpose of the law is. The purpose of the law, the Bible says, is like a schoolmaster to teach us, to bring us to Christ. But once a person is in Christ, they are no longer under the law. The law cannot condemn them any longer because we are in Christ. And in Christ, the Bible says, we are accepted in the beloved. As we look at that passage again, Matthew, keep in mind what was happening in the background. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers were hell-bent on trying to destroy Jesus. Jesus was presenting himself as the Messiah, the promised one, the Christ. And they were doing their best to smear him, to, to ruin his reputation and to try to, try to keep the sheep that they had. They were threatened by him. And Jesus told them very plainly, they're hypocrites. Don't listen to them. The purpose of the law is to drive a person to Christ. That's why we can say in Ephesians, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's not about our righteousness in any sense of the term, of the, of the word, not before and not after a person gets saved. It's all about his righteousness on the cross. It's all about his goodness. Because the only thing I'll tell you now that's good in me is him. And it's only because the love that he showed me that I can actually love other people. It's only because he is in me that I can fulfill the law now. And it's no longer the law of the Old Testament I'm fulfilling because, you know, something he's fulfilled that. He's, he's fulfilled every law. But because I'm in him now, I can actually live that law. 
I, can, I establish the law. So, all the laws in the Old Testament are living in us. We're no longer under them, but we can live them. And that's our challenge. Our challenge is to live for Christ each and every day of our lives, to remember who we are as people, never to forget that we are new creatures in Christ. We are the children of God. We are the ambassadors to this world. And the lives we live are no longer to ourselves but to Christ because we died on that cross with him. We no longer live, but Christ lives in us. God bless you. Thank you.